0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, A Dead Man Named Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 27, 2016, Easter Sunday. I hadn't planned to see the movie Risen. The film was released nationwide back on February 19th to coincide with the run-up to Easter. The story is about an agnostic Roman centurion named Clavius and his colleague Lucius, who were tasked by Pontius Pilate with debunking the rumors that a crucified criminal named Yeshua had risen from the dead. It sounded like an easy job. After all, Clavius himself had given the order to spear Yeshua in the side as he hung from the cross. So, all they had to do was to identify the dead body. The tomato meter gave Risen a paltry 57%. Metacritic registered 51%. And although I hadn't even seen the movie, that didn't stop me from resonating with the review by Peter Travers in Rolling Stone magazine. He wrote, Risen joins the swelling ranks of faith-based films that pander to audiences instead of serving them. I'll let you guess if there's a conversion. Nonetheless, I repressed my cinematic snootiness, and one Friday afternoon about a month ago, I went to see Risen. In many ways, my predisposed views were confirmed. I thought the movie was hokey. And you can always quibble about the film's ratio of biblical accuracy to artistic license. But in one important regard, I really liked Risen. It helped me to imagine that in real history, And in real human lives, something like the story about Clavius and Lucius definitely happened after the death of Jesus. Rumors and denials. Fear and confusion. Doubt and incredulity. That's exactly what we read in the Gospels. Disbelief did not begin with the 18th century Enlightenment, the 19th century Darwinists, or with 20th-century postmodernism. Only our modern hubris could believe that we today have finally advanced beyond the crude superstitions of illiterate peasants, who in 33 AD were so gullible that they didn't know that corpses don't rise from the dead. But in fact, many people doubted the rumors of resurrection. In fact, the first to disbelieve were those closest to Jesus. When the women told the eleven disciples that they had seen the risen Lord, they did not believe it. Luke is even more blunt. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Later two witnesses reported their encounter with Jesus to the eleven, but they did not believe them either, and even Jesus himself rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. Thomas became the most famous doubter, and then, in what might have been Jesus' last resurrection appearance, there were still, quote-unquote, some who doubted. At some point, though, doubt and confusion gave way to deep-seated conviction. There emerged a consensual tradition of first importance that Paul said he had received, preached, and passed on to others, that Christ died, was buried, raised on the third day, and that he appeared publicly to many people. This is what we preach, and this is what you believed, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Luke says that Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. The panic of these unschooled and ordinary men gave way to their bold proclamation. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. When commanded by the religious authorities to stop preaching, Peter and John replied, We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They claimed that they had eaten with the resurrected Jesus, and that many witnesses could attest to his public appearances. So, we read in Acts, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their bravado would have abruptly ended if someone had produced Jesus' body. But the absence of his body and the presence of the empty tomb pointed towards something far more radical than a mere spiritual or figurative resurrection. Others mocked and scoffed. The religious authorities were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people of proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. When some Athenians heard about the resurrection, Luke says, they sneered. Porcius Festus, the Roman governor of Judea under Nero, confessed that he was, quote-unquote, at a loss to know what to do with the prisoner Paul. They did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. The next day, as Paul gave his legal defense, Festus screamed, You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you mad. Peter denied the charge that he propagated a cleverly invented tale. While Paul rebutted Corinthians, who said that there's no resurrection of the dead for anyone at all, So, disbelief in the resurrection was part of the original story, among both the followers and detractors of Jesus. Maybe the first believers were deceived or deceivers, as Pascal put it in his Pensées 322 and 310. That is, either badly deluded and wrong, or blatant liars and immoral. But neither of those explanations has the ring of truth to me. The only thing they stood to gain for their beliefs was political persecution and social marginalization. Paul said that no person should believe a lie about the resurrection, and that they certainly shouldn't preach a lie, that if Jesus is not raised, then Christian proclamation is a cruel hoax and a silly fiction. But so what? Marcus Borg liked to ask, what difference would it make in your life if Jesus was not raised from the dead? That always seemed like a strange question to me. For Paul, the resurrection is partly personal. To the Philippians he writes, God will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So this is something different than Plato's immortality of an immaterial soul. More importantly, the resurrection is totally cosmic. Isaiah 65 for this week imagines a new heaven and a new earth. Paul says in Colossians that God in Christ will reconcile to himself all things, having made peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And in Ephesians, he will sum up or bring together all things in heaven and on earth. The whole creation, says Paul in Romans, will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Jesus destroyed death, our last enemy. He disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He tasted death for everyone, and through death he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And so the paradox that by death, Jesus conquered death. So instead of Borg's casual question, I'm more inclined to the radical opinion of the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan. If Christ is raised from the dead, nothing else matters. If he is not raised from the dead, nothing else matters. I believe the first believers partly because of their original disbelief and because of the price they paid to proclaim the resurrection. Peter, Paul, and many other unknown and unnamed believers died in Rome because of their conviction about the resurrection. And so, in the end, Peter challenges each one of us in Acts 4.19. Judge for yourselves. But evidence and argument only go so far. You can't prove the resurrection. On the one hand, the first witnesses insisted that their message was true and reasonable for the events they describe were, quote-unquote, not done in a corner. In other words, they were public in nature. The story could be corroborated or refuted by people like Clavius, at least at some level, and for a few years. But on the other hand, Luke acknowledges that the resurrected Jesus was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, their witness amounted to what Perlican once called public evidence for a mystery. I believe the belief of the women who were the first, the last at the cross, and the first at the empty tomb. I believe the first believers and stand on the shoulders of other believers across time and space who have believed, confessed, and taught that God raised Jesus from the dead and in that, in doing so, he vanquished sin, death, and evil. So, with readers from around the world and across the ages, I join the Easter Chorus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. For books this week, Easter Sunday, I review a title called A Street Divided, Stories from Jerusalem's Alley of God. The author is Dion Nissenbaum, New York St. Martin's Press, 2015. 246 pages. As part of the ceasefire negotiations in 1948, the Israeli general Moshi Dayan and the Jordanian officer Abdullah El-Tel sat down with grease pencils and a map in order to carve up Jerusalem. Dayan drew a red line on the map and el tell drew a green one. Running right through the middle of their two lines is Assel Street in the neighborhood of Abu Tor. For almost 70 years now, Assel Street has been no man's land, the Forbidden Area, Barbed Wire Alley, or literally, the Alley of God. It's a narrow belt about 50 yards wide and 300 yards long that was controlled by neither Israel nor Jordan. For 20 years, coils of barbed wire split the center of the street. The Palestinians and Jews who lived there on opposite sides of the street lived, literally and symbolically, between the lines. Assal Street is thus a literal and symbolic fault line that has registered the tremors of this intractable conflict. Dion Nissenbaum tells dozens of stories about the families who live on Assal Street, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Everything on Assal Street is argued and debated, even the correct spelling of the name. Nothing is too small for controversy an errant soccer ball, or a wandering chicken. There are thugs, spies, police bullies, and obfuscating bureaucrats. But there are also people who learn each other's languages, attend each other's celebrations, and care for each other's kids. Niesenbaum lived on Assault Street for four years from 2006 to 2009. His personal background lends itself to his empathetic storytelling His father's Judaism played little role in his life. His mother was the daughter of devout Catholic parents. And during a stint in Afghanistan, he met and married a Pakistani Texan woman and subsequently embraced Islam. So he writes with genuine respect for all the people living in one of the world's most combustible mixtures of history, culture, politics, and religion. Once again, the author Dion Nissenbaum. The title, A Street Divided, Stories from Jerusalem's Alley of God, in 2015. For movies this week, I review a new film called Autism in Love. It was published in 2015. This 70-minute PBS documentary features four adults with the autism spectrum disorder who share their life experiences about love and romance. In Los Angeles, Lenny wishes for a girl, but he's painfully self-aware of his differences and is very down on himself because of them. He says, I would give anything to be a normal person and not have autism. In Washington, D.C., Dave and Lindsay have been together for eight years and are trying to decide whether to get married. I always knew I was different, said Lindsay, and was ashamed of that. And then in St. Paul, Minnesota, Stephen now lives with his aging parents after 17 years of marriage to Gita, who died of cancer. In all four of these cases, we see home movies of the people when they were kids, and expressions by their parents of knowing very early how different they were. This is a fascinating film about an abstract concept, love, and how people for whom communication skills and nuanced social interactions are inherently difficult negotiate that experience. It's a call for compassion for people who have a psychological disability that expresses itself in sometimes extreme social differences. For an article that reviews the history and the most recent research about autism, see Stephen Shapen, Seeing the Spectrum, The New Yorker, January 25th, 2016. Once again, the title of the movie, a PBS documentary, you can watch it at the PBS website, Autism in Love. And for Easter Sunday, a beautiful poem which you should really look at on our website because it's written in the shape of a cross. It's by George Herbert, 1593 to 1633. The title of the poem, Easter Wings Lord, who createst man in wealth and store, Though foolishly he lost the same, Decaying more and more, Till he became most poor. With thee, O let me rise, As larks harmoniously, And sing this day thy victories. Then shall the fall further the flight in me, My tender age and sorrow did begin, and still with sickness and shame thou didst so punish sin that I became most thin. With thee let me combine and feel this day thy victory. For if I imp my wing on thine, affliction shall advance the flight in me. George Herbert Easter Wings. Easter blessings from Journey with Jesus, this Sunday, March twenty 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.